Father God, we desire now more than anything else in the world for you to come, for your presence to come here, and for you to do what only you can do, Father, for you to open our eyes to the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for you to take our hearts wherever they are this morning, if they're preoccupied with other things, if they're hardened to you, um, if they're feeling hurt, whatever, whatever, whatever place on the spectrum we are at, Father, I pray that you would come and do your great, powerful work through the Holy Spirit in our hearts, that you take the words um, from Colossians and that you'd press them into the deepest parts of our being so that we are transformed by them and that we become more like Christ. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles, please grab them and turn to Colossians 3. We're going to start in verse 1. So the last few weeks we've been talking about how Christians fight sin. This is the focus that Paul has in this part of the book of Colossians. And he's asking really the question, how do we make war on our sins? How do we fight all the selfish desires in our hearts that will ultimately dishonor God or harm other people. And up to this point, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but Paul's been, he hasn't been really preoccupied with methodology at all. He hasn't been focused on some programmatic system or some step-by-step program. He's focused us on pursuing Christ Jesus. Like that's what he is focusing us on. And I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. It's not going to change. It's not going to get too different from that. He's going to stay on this. But this week, we're going to see something a little bit different. We're going to see Paul begin to explain how this works out practically in the life of a believer. What it is about clinging to Christ, about trusting in him and pursuing him that generates in our heart, that causes us to be holy. How does that happen? How does our pursuit of him yield good fruit? And so that's the question we're asking today. So let's begin with Colossians 3. We're going to read the first four verses, and then we'll see where God takes us. Verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so Paul begins with this statement, if then you have been raised with Christ. And so he's telling them that you've been raised with Christ. This is what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. This is the foundation he is laying for our fight against sin. And like I said, this isn't the first time we've looked at this fact, this reality, if you remember, Colossians 2.12 says, you were, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. And so what Paul is saying here is that though we were dead in our sins, though we were dead in the passions of our flesh, God looked down on us with great love and great mercy, and he freed us from those things by making us alive. He refused to allow us to perish any longer. And he makes us alive through faith. So, so we, with Christ Jesus, have died, and our sins in death were canceled. But we didn't stay dead. That's not where we stayed. 
when Christ rose, all who were his rose with him. And so Paul says our response to this massive reality, this massive fact is that we will now seek the things that are above, to seek the things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, before we ask what probably is the most important question, what are those things we're supposed to seek? What are the things that he's talking about here? We need to ask what the connection is between those things, whatever they are, and Christ being seated at the right hand of God. What's the connection there? Why mention that? Well, he explains this in Ephesians 2. If you guys remember, we've been through this passage multiple times. It's so glorious. Verses 4 and six, four through 6 say this, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying here, we were dead in our sin. Christ made us alive. And he not only made us alive, he raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ. God did this in the heavenly places. So consider with me just for a moment, as far as God is concerned right now, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, you are right now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Right now, in some real way, you are with Christ at the right hand of the living God. Now, no doubt, this is a spiritual reality. We are physically in this room. We are not experiencing this tangibly the way we will in the future, but it's real. It is real. And no matter what I feel or what you feel on a given day, this is still true of us. And we can't forget it. Right now, we are, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, seated with Christ at the right hand of God. And so Paul says, listen, if that's the, if that's the case, you need to set your minds on the things that are above and not on things that are on earth. You can't fix your eyes on earthly things, on earthly means to your sanctification, to you pursuing holiness. You deal with your sin first by setting your mind on things that are above. This is how you begin the fight, by recognizing intrinsically what happened on the cross. You are with Christ. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And so you seek the things that are above. You fix your gaze on them. You saturate your mind with them. And Paul provides us the reason for this in verse 3, Colossians 3.3. 3. He says, for you have died and your life right now is hidden with Christ in God. So he's saying your earthly and fleshly pursuits may have made sense to you while you were living in them, living for them, desiring to do them, but that old man has died decisively. When Christ died and was buried, we were di- we died and we were buried. And that burial not only satisfied the justice and the wrath that was due us because of our sin, but it leveled a death blow against any earthly desires in us that dominated our lives before. They may still pop up, you may still feel them present, but they have been decisively dealt a death blow and they will pass away. And Paul's saying, now, Your life isn't earthly anymore. It is hidden with Christ in God. Christ has you. 
God has you. You are with them. And that's what happened on the cross. That's what the union with Christ is all about. He took us with him to be with his Father. And all of our lives is a working out of that reality from what happened on the cross. But something else is going on here. This isn't the end goal. Us being seated with Christ right now spiritually is not the end goal. End goal. Paul says in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So listen to me for a moment here. That you physically live in Kirkland, Washington, or wherever you find yourself right now in 2018 may be important geographically, but it is infinitely less significant than the fact that spiritually you are seated with Christ Jesus. Because what that means, that you are in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, is that when he returns, you too will appear in glory. This is going to happen. And this is not something that's a five-year plan. This is not something that's a 5,000-year plan. This is eternal. This is forever. That's what's going to happen. We will be with Christ forever. And Paul Paul says here, Christ is your life. If your faith is in him, Christ Jesus is your life. He is your very source of being and existence. We are alive right now. I'm talking physically, but I'm talking spiritually as well. We are alive spiritually because he lives. This new life that we possess from Christ means that we are destined for glory. We are destined to experience the eternal joy of being with him and his father. So if Christ is your life, when he rose, never to die again, we too rose with him so that we could be with him forever. And so our response to that reality is that we seek the things that are above. We fight sin by saying, this world is not my home. This is not my home. It may look like my home. It is not my home. I belong to another world. I belong to a better country. This world and its desires are passing away. I was made for glory. And so here's the deal. Rightly thinking about Christ, sometimes we fall into this pitfall where we get preoccupied with what's going to happen next in the Christian life, and it creates this escapist mentality. Rightly thinking about the return of Christ Jesus and the glory we will receive from him should never create indifference in the heart of a Christian. Never. Not for this present world. It should create a desire in us to give our lives so that others might join us in this joy. It should create a a passion in us not to ignore suffering as we wait for Christ, but to embrace it, to take massive risks for the sake of Jesus in his name and for the sake of bringing others into this joy. When we realize and when we really believe that this is not our home, that's when Christ will use us not as an escapist Christian. We won't become escapist Christians, but we will be willing to sacrifice everything in that moment for the joy of others because we know that this life can't satisfy us. It can't bring us the joy that we were made for. That one day Christ is going to come, he's going to take us, and he's going to clothe our broken, lowly, sinning bodies with his glory and cleanse us completely so that we never desire anything but him again. And so, here's the question. 
what does it mean when Paul says, seek the things that are above? We still haven't defined what those things are. What does it mean to set our minds on these things? And, and how does this keep us from sinning? How does this prevent us from falling prey to sin? Well, this is where Philippians 3 is going to help us out today. Um, it's going to connect these things. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Philippians 3. And we're going to be looking at, uh, we'll start at verse 10. And if, if, if you've been here over the past year, we've come to Philippians 3 over and over and over again. We'll always return to this because this point in Philippians 3 is where Paul holds out the infinite value of Jesus Christ and what it means for him personally. We see a glimpse into his heart about how dominated he is by his joy in Christ Jesus. And he says, you guys remember this by heart probably, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss next to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Indeed, I count everything as loss. He counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And in doing that, and in counting those things lost because he sees Jesus as Jesus rightly is. He's not blocked by anything. He's not obfuscated. He sees him clearly as a supreme treasure. Paul says, I know Christ. I trust Christ. And that man owns me. I will do anything for him. And according to verse 9, because he has faith in Christ, Paul has received a righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is a uniquely Christian experience. No other belief system in the world has anything like this, letting go of every other pursuit and desire in this world and saying, I want Jesus. I need Jesus. And when we receive and trust in Christ, we receive his perfect righteousness. Now, the question we have here today is this, why? To what end are we made righteous? Well, Paul explains in verse 10. He says, that I may know him, may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, and that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul, just like in Colossians 3, is saying here, I'm looking toward the resurrection. Remember in Colossians 3, he says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the power of the resurrection. That's what Paul's talking about in Philippians. When Christ returns, he will give us bodies that are like his. Perfect, complete, glorified. With hearts that, get this, this is the most amazing thing. That never desire to sin again. Ever. Not once. Bodies that will never dishonor God. That are fully capable of worshiping in the way we were always intended to. And so Paul says, I want that. I want that more than anything. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection, even if I have to share in the sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And if that's what it takes to bring people to him, I absolutely will do that. That is a cost appropriate for the glory that I see. Now, at this point, Paul could stop and he could, he could finish right here this point that he's trying to make in the letter to the Philippians, but he doesn't. Listen to what he says. He wants them to know this is not automatic. This is not a flip of the switch. He says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this. I haven't obtained the resurrection. I'm not perfect and complete. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own 
because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So Paul says, I'm not perfect. I'm not complete yet. I haven't obtained this glory that I'm talking about yet, but this is what I do. I press on to make it my own. And I do this not because I've earned anything, but because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I belong to Jesus. I'm seated with Christ. I'm hidden with Christ in God. And because of that, because he's made me his own, I press on. And I do everything I can to bring that future reality, that future glory into my life right now. And he tells us how he does that in the next few verses. He says, brothers, in verse 13, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, I haven't made this my own yet. I haven't done it. I still have a lowly body. I'm still infected by sinful desires. But this is what I do. I do this. I forget everything that's happened before my entire life up till now. My sins and failures, I put that behind me and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I reach out to the future resurrection and that sinless glory and I lay hold of it in faith. This is how Paul takes that reality in the future and he does everything to draw that into his present life. This is the essence of Christian, Christian sanctification. We don't just drum up righteousness of our own. We don't just manufacture it. That's, that's not how we become holy. We reach out to a future goalie, a future, not goalie, future goal purchased by Christ Jesus of being sinless and being holy before God. A reality that he bought with his own blood that we will possess guaranteed. We reach forward to that and we say, I will live that's me. That's who I really am in Christ Jesus. I will live like that now. I will live my entire life as though I already have that possession. Forgetting what lies ahead and pressing forward, straining with all of his might at what's ahead of him. It says, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is that? What is that? That's the resurrection. That's the resurrection. That's our pursuit of Christ into glorification at the, at the final day when we appear with Christ in glory. And this is how Christians are called to pursue holiness. This is how we are called to fight sin. Paul would say to us, do you want to know how I am willing to, to gladly give up anything that keeps others when they look at me from seeing Jesus Christ? Do you want to know how um, I pursue holiness every single day I'm alive and how I want others to see my commitment to Jesus is unparalleled. To his kingdom, I would die for him. He would answer that question and say, the prize of the upward call of God is why I pursue holiness. Paul's life in the present wasn't controlled by his past like the rest of the world. It was dominated by his future. His soul was constantly straining forward, constantly trying to draw every single bit of that future glory purchased by Christ Jesus alone into the present and reminding himself, I don't belong in this world. This is not my home. And if he was here today, he would tell each of us that we don't belong in this world either. Listen to verse 17. He says, brothers, to the Philippian church, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
So the example he's laying out here for us is not just icing on the, on the cake. It is apparently essential for the survival of Christians. Because Paul says if we don't follow this examples, we prove to be enemies of the cross. We can become enemies of the cross. And this isn't an idle statement. He's begging these people, the Philippians, through tears. People he's lost are popping into his mind as he writes this. People who, who've betrayed the, the way, betrayed Christianity and walked away from the faith. He's begging us to see this through tears. He's saying, please don't ignore this. Please do not ignore this. And he's weeping about people who once belonged to a church. People who, who break his heart right now because they are outside the church. They used to, they look like followers of Christ. But at some point, they refuse to press on. At some point, they refuse to make it their own. And now they, who are many apparently, many, they walk as enemies of the cross. Now notice he doesn't say they walk indifferent to the cross. Or... They walk ignorant of the cross. He says they are enemies of the cross. And this is breaking his heart. Tears are hitting the parchment as he writes this. Why call them enemies, Paul? What, what exactly did they do? What in the world happened to them that led them down this path? They heard the gospel. They were part of the community of faith. Why did they abandon God's people? And verse 19 tells us, first, what happened to them, why they abandoned Christ. And then verse 20 reminds the Philippian church who they really are in Christ Jesus. So listen to this passage. Paul says of the enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. This is heavy. Paul is saying there are two kinds of people. There are two paths, and there are only two. One path belongs to the enemies of the cross of Christ, and the other path belongs to citizens of heaven. And I'm being real here. There aren't any other paths. There is no third path. There's no fence that you can sit on and make a decision later on. You either embrace the offer of forgiveness in the cross of Christ Jesus, or you ignore that offer and turn to anything other than Jesus. Those are the only two responses to this. There isn't a middle ground because the, the cross represents an objective reality that it is the only refuge for sinners. It is the only refuge for people who have sinned. And we've all sinned. We've all rejected the glory of God. So you either love the cross of Christ because it represents forgiveness or you hate it for what it represents even if you don't express it in those terms. Because what it is, is the only solution and remedy to your sin. And if you deny it, you say it's worthless. And so, please, feel Paul's agony as he says this over these people that have, that have walked away. He says, I'm bringing them up in the letter. And it's causing me enormous pain to do so. But you need to know what not to do. He says their end is destruction. Destruction. This is how it ends for the enemies 
of the cross of Christ. Divine reciprocity. The final settling of accounts, which is the wrath of God. Without the cross, there is no hope from this. There is no hope from justice in God's hands. But why are they enemies? What caused them to turn away from the cross? Paul says they're enemies because their God isn't the true God. Their God isn't the Christ that saved them. Their God is their own belly. They worship their carnal desires, whatever they're hungry for. They have one master, and that's their passions and their selfish pursuits. This is their God, to be gratified by the flesh and to have ultimate joy in this life only. And Paul says that this path is a path that glories in shame, which is an interesting way to put it. And what he's saying here is it exalts in what can't possibly save you. It makes a God out of something that can never bear the weight of divinity, can never bear the weight of being worshipped. And this, Paul sums up, is really the product of minds that are gripped by and set, set on earthly things, not on heavenly things. This is precisely what he's pleading with the Colossians not to do. Don't set your mind on the earth. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on earthly passions. And the reason we do this is because we don't belong to this world. Our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. We are seated with Christ. We belong to Him alone. And so when we read Colossians 3 or Philippians 3, we see that the disposition of these passages is to seek the things that are above. And the root of that seeking, the, 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 the very bottom of that seeking, is that we are citizens of heaven. We belong to God. Now, here's the question. What are these things that we are to seek? Is there any specificity to this? Well, Paul provides them in Philippians 3, at least some of them. And so we're going to reflect on three of them today. The first of those is really clear. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing that we seek, the first thing that we set our minds on is Christ. And this isn't new to us. If you've been here the last two weeks, we've been beating this drum because it's, it's what's in the text. And we've talked about this um, from different angles, from faith. We've talked about it from clinging to Christ and not to traditions or superstitions. But let me be honest. Here's the question that we've got. Do we do, we do this? Do we seek Him? Do we, do we aggressively pursue Him in our daily life? Time with Jesus in prayer. Time with Jesus in the Word. Are we constantly filling ourselves up with Christ? Because this is how we beat sin. Want to know how to beat sin? It's not subtraction first. Subtraction will come later. It's not subtraction first. It's addition. KB, uh, a Christian musician, a rapper, um, says this. We get so fat on God that we spoil sin's appetite. We're so saturated with the reality of who God is that sin doesn't appeal to us anymore. That those desires start to diminish and be forced down. Is that what we're doing? Or do we find ourselves oftentimes just coasting? I'll get to Jesus when I get time for him. At some point at the end of the day. Paul's telling us we need to press on. Citizens of heaven wait for a Savior, and we don't do this by putting Christ on the back burner or by ignoring Him. Now, that's the first thing. That's the first of the things that we seek, Christ our Savior. The second is this. What do we set our minds on? What do we, what do we seek? 
what happens when Christ returns. What will happen when that Savior shows up? It says Christ will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So consider this uh, for a moment. Paul's already said in verse 10, personally for him, he wants to know the power of the resurrection. That's what he's pressing on for. That's what he's striving towards. That's his life's goal is to know Christ and to know the power of the resurrection. (laughs) And when Christ returns, when the Savior appears, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So think about this. If your faith is in Christ, the future that is headed your way is this event, being with Christ and being transformed to be like him. That's reality. This is not fantasy. This is not make-believe. This is real. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Do you look at that and think of it as, that's happening, that's coming towards me right now? Do you pine and yearn for the day when your body will be free from the desire to sin anymore? To say and do destructive things to people, to dishonor God? From the day that you won't feel drawn to those things anymore? If I can be real with you, I do. I absolutely do. I hate my sin. I hate the areas in my life that that aren't in submission to Christ that I fight with. I hate those. I hate struggling against the flesh. The resurrection is not just a theological point. It's not. The resurrection from the dead is the finish line of the Christian walk. And it means at that moment we will be completely set free from sin. It, and it's not just an imperishable, imperishable body. That's amazing. A body that will never die is incredible. But what's more than that is that we get a body free from sin, free from the effects of sin. We will see him. First John 2 says this. And when we see him, we shall be like him in an instant. So how often do we think about that? How often do we dwell on that, set our minds on that, and just draw it into our current life. That's number two, the resurrection from the dead and the glorified body that will never sin. Here's number three. Um, There's one more thing. It's not explicit in the text, but I feel like it's here. I'm hoping that you see it too. (laughs) First, we seek Christ. Second, we, we seek the power of the resurrection to be like Christ. And Philippians 3.21 says this, that this transformation will happen because Christ possesses immense power. It says, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Now that's incredible. Jesus Christ, our King, possesses power that enables him to subject everything, everything, every molecule in the universe to himself. That's the King that we're dealing with here. That's the kind of King we have. But if we're honest... We look around this world, we look into our own hearts, and we kind of have to ask the question, what's going on? Because it doesn't look like things are subjected to him right now. It doesn't feel like things are subjected to him right now. We're still broken. We're still fighting sin every day. We look around the rest of the world, which is a mess. So, So what's going on here? Christ has this power why isn't it being used? Well, Paul says in Romans 8, 19, that creation right now, all of creation, is waiting, eagerly longing 
for the revealing of the sons of God. That's the resurrection from the dead. Creation is waiting for God's children who are scattered across the world. Some have died, some are alive right now for them to be revealed for who they really are. In that moment, every single molecule in the universe, every single atomic particle will know that you and I belong to him. We belong to Christ. We are God's children. And in that moment, everything, every single thing will be bro- that's broken will be mended. Everything that is soiled will be cleansed. Everything that is shattered will be restored. And everything that is sinful will be removed and cast out. That's the consummation of all things. That's the purpose of creation. And Paul is saying, you're a child of God. You need to set your minds on that. Set your minds on the inbreaking of God's kingdom. It is unlike anything that has ever happened in human existence. And Christ will do this. He promises to. He holds that power. There's, one day there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears, no more sin. This is the fullness of God's kingdom. And again, this is not a, just a theological point. We can get caught up and say, yeah, that's a doctrine I believe. We are called to hope in this. This is not just a point of entertainment that someone can make a movie about. This is reality. And we are called to cling to this reality and to realize that it's coming, one day's coming, the last day, when he will do, he will set everything that's broken back to rights. Are we praying for this? Are we, are we seeking this from God? He's given us a prayer to pray for this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth, which is broken, but do it as it is in heaven, which is perfect and holy. Do that, Father. That's our prayer. So Paul prays for this. Paul seeks this, this future reality, which is what he's pressing on for. This is what he's straining with all of his might for. Now, (laughs) we can't hold these things as just simply Bible facts. We can't hold these things as just theological things that we affirm. We have to hope in them. We have to do everything in our hearts to draw those massive realities into our lives right now because that's what conforms us into the image of Christ, to look to Christ, to look at the fact that he's going to purge our sin one day. That's our true self in the future and that his kingdom is coming into this world right now. That's our constant prayer. Our constant desire is for this glorious future kingdom to come not to escape the present, never to escape the present, but rather that we as children of God would be instruments in his hands to pry open the world, pull out the cancer that is in there through sacrificial love, people who are willing to lay down their lives for the sake of Christ and to meet the physical needs of other people and to give them the greatest news in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how the Christian life is lived. This is what Paul's pressing against the Colossian Christians and the Philippians, this is what you need to do. You need to set your mind on the things that are above. Forget what lies behind. Forget that. And strain forward ahead to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the prize. That's the goal. The question we have, the last question we have is this. What drives Paul every day to wake up and do this? What gives him the confidence to tell a Colossian Christian in the first century, this is what you need to do? What gives him the confidence to do that? How, how are we supposed to think of ourselves to compel ourselves, to catalyze our hearts to do this every single day? What, what, for example, what caused Paul to be willing to give up his own life to seek these things? What drove him to pursue 
holiness in such a way that he eliminated, he was willing to eliminate anything in his life that would obstruct others from seeing that Jesus Christ was his greatest treasure. He's like, I'm not going to, there's not going to be any confusion about this at all. I'm laying my life down. This is how valuable Jesus is for me. What caused him to do that? Well, it's in a verse that we've already read today, Philippians 3, 12. Listen to this. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why, Paul? Why do you do that? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I'm his. I belong to Christ. I'm his. I'm his. He gave his life for me to be free. I belong to him. And, and we need to reflect on this because we think about this corporately. The church belongs to him. You individually think of your name on his lips. You belong to Christ. He has made you his own by giving himself for you completely. Paul doesn't press on for this end because he's an awesome person. He doesn't press on because he's figured it all out. He doesn't press on for anything in himself. He presses on right now because he belongs to Christ Jesus. He presses on to the goal for the call of the upward call or for, to the goal of the upward call of God because Christ Jesus has taken him and made him his own. Christ gave himself up for Paul. He gave up everything for Paul. And if your faith is in Christ Jesus right now, you individually, this is true about you. This is the same thing for you. And so we need to reflect on that reality and make it our life. We seek Christ. We seek the future resurrection. We seek his kingdom because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He's done the work. He's done all of that. We do all of that because he's made us his own. He paid everything, everything that he needed to pay in order to keep us with him forever. He's removed every barrier that would keep us away from him. And he's done what needed to be done so that he can say to us, you will be mine forever. He's saying that to you individually on the cross. And so Paul looks at this love and he is overwhelmed by it. He looks at this love and he is so completely taken by it that it drives him to press on. It drives him to seek these things that are above. And so my prayer for our church, for this body of believers here, for the people who weren't here today, and, and, and God willing for anyone who reads this passage, my prayer is that we would press on to make this our own. That we would lean into with all of our strength, all of our might every single day, the fact that, that, that we are Christ, that we belong to him, that we would desire to know him deeper, that we would desire to seek him out in scriptures, that we would desire to give our hearts to him in prayer every single day and commend our bodies to him every single day as recipients of a future glory that will be coming to us. It is guaranteed. And a kingdom that will never perish. And even more glorious than imperishability, there won't be anything broken or sinful in it. We will be free to worship and delight in God, unmitigated, unparalleled glory forever. The highest possible joy imaginable for infinity. 
That's what he's driving us towards here. And our steps in that direction don't begin the moment we die. They begin today. They begin every single day of your life anew. So let's pray. Father God, we're about to take communion as a body of believers, Lord. If we trust Christ, we are, we are free to come to the table and to glorify you by participating in the body of Christ and by um, trusting in you, trusting in the sacrifice that happened 2,000 years ago. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would stir in our hearts such a hunger and desire to do these things, to seek the things that are above, to take our minds and to take them, pry them off of all the distractions that we have in our life and to set them on these things, on Christ, on the future glory that's ours through, through him and on this kingdom, Father God, that he's infiltrating the present world with. And, and my prayer, Father, is that this time as we pray and worship, Lord, that we would use this as a time to confess the ways in which we haven't done that, that we've neglected our time with you, that we would confess any way in which we've dishonored you, any fruit of that neglect, Father, any sin that's cropped up in our hearts that we are desiring and treasuring something more than you, Father. I pray that you convict us by the power of your Holy Spirit and that we would lay those before you and plead with you for forgiveness, knowing that you are faithful and true and that your blood covers every single iniquity. Father, I pray right now that you would come powerfully in worship and in communion and that you would glorify your name among these people. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.